and welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. Guess what? It's a podcast about board games. Kel Surprise. Surprise! I'm here with my good friend Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, and it is nice to have confirmation that I am not the only one who brings French to the podcast. There you go. Board games. What a great hobby. Right? Brings people together. It's getting people off their phones. And the community around the board games is very supportive. Right? Our guild... BGG, Reddit, all of these places, very welcoming to board gamers. If anyone goes into any of the other, like, video games or any other of the sub-genres, you'll find that it's a much different atmosphere. And I'm, I'm really happy that, that we here in the board game community are very welcoming and, and are fun to be around. On that note, we're going to talk about some board games. We're going to talk about the ones we played last year. We're going to talk about the ones we played this week. Then we're going to talk about some news and why it does not matter. Our feature game, which is Talon by GMT. Yes, it's true. I played a GMT game. It's a miracle. I, I, if I hadn't been there, I would not have believed it. And then our topic of the week, which is table talk. Is it good? Is it bad? When should you use it? Who knows? So Mark, what did you play this week? Well, let us begin, as we always do, with the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. Last year, we our feature game was A Feast for Odin, which is a game that I think I can safely say has remained in our regular rotation for both of us. I actually ponied up for one of those expensive inserts because it was just cool enough. and I got the one with the little uh, engraved axes for the for the money trays, and uh, I was a sucker for that. And a special little boat for the moose. In the giant, yeah. Boat. Yeah, yeah, the moose boat's the moose great. Boat. We're both eagerly anticipating the expansion, namely the Norwegians. Uh, we don't, I, I don't know a whole heck of a lot about it, to be honest. I haven't gotten any early buzz. But anyway, we both still love A Feast for Odin. Like I said, it's one of those games where my score pad is completely filled, so it's a fantastic feeling. Yep, yep, a great sign. So what did you play this week? So played the Quacks of Quedlingburg. I don't know how that's supposed to be pronounced. I don't even know if it's a real place. Anyway. I don't think it's a real game. <laughs> uh, well, I, I wouldn't necessarily strongly disagree with that. <laughs> it has been characterized as a bag builder, and I'm, I'm increasingly coming to the impression that either the definition of bag builder that I have in my head and deep in my heart is different from that that other people have, or it's the case that I don't like bag builders and I just like Hyperborea. I thought I liked bag builders, but I keep playing these other bag builders, and they're like, well, all these ways in which they do bag building different from Hyperborea seems like a bad idea to me. Anyway, the Quacks of Quedlingburg is not particularly like Orléans or Hyperborea or Master, or Altiplano or Master of the Galaxy. It's a push-your-luck game. It could have easily been cards. It could have been anything, really, where you're just trying to pull things from a pool that you build and you just don't want to go bust. And in, that basic formula I don't necessarily object to. I just saw a lot of weird things happen in the play that we had of the Quacks of Quedlingburg. It was just the case that in the crucial rounds, uh, because things escalate very quickly, there's a strong rich-get-richer element. There's, a, there's also a very, very strong rubber-banding element. If anyone's ever played a racing game on a video game console and is familiar with the sort of sloppy AI whereby, oh, you're ahead too far, the car is going to accelerate irrationally. The catch-up mechanic in Quacks of Quedlingburg is one of those really obvious, really blatant, really strong elements. And I, I didn't really object to that in the context of a game of this uh, of this depth and this length, which is to say relatively short and relatively light. It was just a little obvious that they didn't know how to, how to deal with the compounding rich-get-richer problems and a whole bunch of other stuff. Anyway, I personally felt that the victory in Quacks of Kreppingberg is how often you draw your high-value crappy things because that's what's going to make you bust. I didn't see room for clever play. I didn't see room for anything particular ingenuity. And to be honest, the physical design of Quacks of Kreppingberg was borderline unpleasant because what you're doing is you're just pulling chits endlessly from your bag. And they're not circular. They have these weird little knobby things. And it's just it was just unpleasant to spend so much time drawing it out. Had they been discs, things would have been nicer. Had they been of a more substantial material, had they been round, I think it would have been better. But they have this, as I say, this, this strange shape. Uh, it, it, was, it was kind of okay, but I'm not going to play again. It didn't, it didn't strike me as, as having any uh, uh, per particular ingenuity there. And I felt like I didn't really have a whole lot of control over my fate. You know, you draw until you have seven, which is the magic number, and then you stop. Oh, look, I drew all my good times. I win. That's great. So that was the Quacks of Quedlingburg. I finally got to play Brass. Brass Birmingham? Yes, you played Birmingham. 
one with the the beer, and I only played it once, so I don't want to go like too much in depth. But it just seemed that there seemed to be just a lot of sniping going on. Like you only get two actions, and there'd be stuff on the board, and you know it gets used up before it's your turn. There's like six actions that go on before you even get another turn. It just seemed a lot of this, you know, you, you try to set something up and then it just gets thwarted by everybody and there, there's not much to do, you know, to set up a long, like a lengthy strategy, you know what I mean? Because so much can happen before it's your turn again. And the beer part just seemed like, you know, it was few and far between, so it was hard to actually do anything with it. This, like I said, this is just the first play. So I thought the the turn order thing was a fantastic mechanism, you know, how much money you pay. And I think there's a lot more to the game, like manipulating that turn order so you can go last and then first again, and then you get the four actions, and that way you can do all those things that you want to do without getting, you know, thwarted. But that was my play of Brass Burningham. Burningham is actually a very good way to characterize it. It's a shame that I, it would appear that the copy you had played came from a smoking household because there just seemed to be, the, the board seemed to be burned in a way. I'm amazed you could even read it. It is very dark and black and and not so colorful. Not sure why they went with that particular color palette. It's like Blackout Burningham. I can't wait to play Blackout because it looks another fantastically black and dark game, but you know, at least it's not, what, troll bits. It's not all orange, right? So there you go. <laughs> it's strange. Your criticisms, early though they may be, of Brass seem to be consistent with some of the design uh, similarities between Brass and Age of Industry. I've commented before that I, I vastly prefer Age of Industry. I think it's a cleaner, better design. And I'm not just talking about the colors on the board. But those elements of sniping, of opportunism, of not really being able to execute too, too much on your turn without someone else possibly being able to interfere with you, they might still be present in Age of Industry in a way that you don't find satisfying. My objections to Brass are, are more based on the fact that I find it more obtuse than it needs to be, which is basically one of the common criticisms I've had of most of the Euros of the past five years, not that Brass was designed the past five years. But it's certainly also consistent with my criticisms of most Wallace games. Anyway, I'm still, I'm still in interested in showing you Age of Industry and seeing if you uh, you have any appreciation for it. I know you played it once a long time ago, but some of the variant maps are very cool. Anyhow, and I'm still someday probably going to try Brass, but I do find it strange that a number of people that I've shown Age of Industry to, their immediate reaction was, oh, this is this is kind of obtuse. And then Brass goes on Kickstarter and now everyone loves Brass, which is which is weird because it, it is legitimate to prefer Brass over Age of Industry. You know, there are design dissimilarities and people's tastes differ. But I don't think any sane person could argue that Brass is less obtuse than Age of Industry is. So that's what a Kickstarter and, and several hundred thousand dollars is going to do. Everyone's going to love it now. A new facelift, right? So Absolutely. Everyone's on board. Yeah, dark purple over black is definitely the way to make your game appealing it to everybody. pops, man. Yeah, yeah. It makes things much simpler looking. I commented last week that I wanted to play more area majority games. And I got a great area majority game to the table called In the Shadow of the Emperor. This is a design back from when Rio Grande was a thing. Uh, so it's about a uh, almost a 15-year-old game now then. And it's got this lovely element of your control pieces being nobles, and they age. And as a result, they can, you know, die of old age. Sometimes they get married, and that makes them more potent. Because, you know, the men exercise the vote of the women, because that's the way things worked, of course. And there's a lot of political machinations going on. A lot of sort of collusion, not in the sense of deal-making, but in the sense of of knowing where to pick your fights and knowing when to cooperate with some people for some very, very limited games. Lots of interesting actions to pull off. I, I adore In the Shadow of the Emperor. I think it's a marvelous, marvelous design. And when I first tried it, uh, I must have been young and stupid because I didn't really find it worth its playing time and I found it a little uh, uh, dull and plotting. But the great thing about In the Shadow of the Emperor is you don't get points for turtling. You get points for grabbing things. You almost never get points for holding things. And that leads to a dynamism and, and forces you always to go off in search of another greener pasture. And it really informs the kind of fights that you want to pick because you don't automatically want to reactively defend what you have. Sometimes you do. Make no mistake. It is sometimes in your interest to, to, to fight people off. But most of the time, it's just everyone's shuffling around trying to get to the next big thing. 
And this doesn't lead to chaos. This instead leads to very fierce competition over very specific goals. Anyhow, uh, it's, you know, relatively theme-light, as you might imagine from uh, from things. It's, you know, something about the Holy Roman Empire. But it's actually somewhat fitting that a game about the Holy Roman Empire would be light on theme because the Holy Roman Empire was, as, you know, Voltaire said, neither holy nor Roman nor, nor an empire. It's, it's, it's a game about German politics during the Middle Ages and has all the thematic excitement that you might expect from that. But Ooh, I'm just... A, I'm just vibrating here listening to it. It sounds so exciting. The thematic elements that are cool, though, are the fact that you're managing a literal family of nobles that age and get married, and you have a, your family has a daughter, and so you offer her up in marriage, but then she gets rebuffed, so you have to send her to a convent, and then you're angry at the people that didn't want to marry your daughter. So that's kind of neat. And for a relatively themeless Euro, that's a reasonable amount of theme. So I had a great time within the Shadow of the Emperor, I am looking forward to, to playing it more, and I, I it is definitely uh, fueling my desire to, con- to to play more of the the sort of solid, tried and true area majority games in the Euro canon. We got to the table, Kemet, with the new expansion Seth, or other people might say Seti. Who knows? <laughs> Seti was the other one. Tasati was the was the first expansion. The, the way I've heard it said is uh, Set with an set. aspirated T. That the H is meant for aspiration. Any comments that viewers have with respect to how to, this is pronounced ought to be sent straight up your keister. Care of so very wrong about games. Perfect. So what this does is make it a co-op game where all the players join together to fight against another player. Sorry, I guess semi-co-op. All all v one, and it really does not feel tacked on. Like it's not like. With these other expansions, you know, where it feels like shoehorned in or forced in. This seems very smooth. There's lots to do. There's multiple uh, victory conditions, which all seem very interesting. Like there's these temples you build and they all give you bonuses and you only need to build one. So it's not out of the question. And then it gives the option of building more. So you get even more bonuses and then you have to spend a whole bunch of power and then you have to win so many fights and you have to complete all of these objectives before the, the one player, you know, gets x number of victory points and i think it was a it was very good uh, i don't think you should play it with six players i think you know maybe three or four players would be best but other than that it is a great expansion and i'm looking forward to getting my own copy i'm looking forward to trying it more i agree with you that our first outing wasn't ideal number one we had a new player she took to it very very well but i don't think that this is this is a good introduction to Comet. And we did play it with six. I would much rather, I think the ideal would probably be, you know, four or five very experienced players who are able to knock it out. And as far as whether or not it's tacked on, I'm not sure. I really want to see more of it. I was concerned about two things going into Comet Set. One of them was, would the interactions of all the new powers work? And the answer was, quite well, yes. The interactions between various existing tiles and new tiles and new effects was actually very, very well done. There were a couple of instances where we were kind of nervous that there would be a problem, and then we just read the effects, and they were worded in such a way that it was very clear about how they operated, and so I was extremely pleased about that. All the other stuff, I'm not a whole, I'm not really very certain how, how well integrated and clean it is. The new things for the Alliance to do for the good guys to win against set are interesting, but they're kind of weird, and the timing is a little off, and... Some of the new tiles, although the interactions are relatively cool, are, are, are perhaps a bit suspect. You know, so, I mean, I was, I was very pleased with our play, even though it was far too long. And, and I, again, keeping the player count down, uh, I'm, I'm potentially intrigued. But uh, I don't know, on the face of it, I'm not sure that I'd ever prefer it over normal commit from where we are now. But as, as you know, time will tell, early impressions only. Now, I did add some questions for you. How does it? How did it scale player count? Like, I'm wondering, was it a different map piece? Like, were the actions along the top different on player count? Okay, that totally makes sense. The way set is set up is you don't have the normal day-night structure of the base game. In Kemet, you have uh, a player order, and when it is uh, someone's turn, they take a single action. You keep going around until everyone's done their five actions, and then there's, you know, sort of a refresh phase. In Kemet set, the way that it goes is there's this insert that covers up one of the cities on the board, and... Set takes a couple of actions, and then all the alliance players take one action, and then Set might takes three actions or or whatever if it's a large player count game. But when as you go to fewer player uh, player counts, Set gets fewer actions compared to the rest of the the alliance players. Uh, so the, I'm not sure how smooth the scaling is and how well, how consistently the, the the balance adjustment was. I will say though that in in its in its praise, at various points in the game, it looked like it was going to be an easy win for the alliance or an impossible win for the alliance. 
defense. But at the very end, it came down to the wire in, an, in a relatively satisfying way. And that quite surprised me, precisely because of how dif- different the victory conditions are for the, both the Alliance and Set. Uh, Set's victory conditions are very, very simple. Win a certain number of fights. That's it. That is all that Set ever wants to do. Whereas the Alliance has to do these three very different things, some of which are, are entirely new to the game. So I, I didn't know how it was going to gel, but that really gelled very, very well. I'm, I'm intrigued. I want to see more of it. But as I say, I might just want to go back to the base game. It, it, it certainly seems to me not quite as good as the core edition of the Black Power Tiles from Tassati, but it definitely seems better than the actual Tassati element, the, that ancillary city system that didn't really work for, for Comet. Anyhow, so we'll let you know more if we get set back to the table. Played another game of Gaslands, more new players, loved the system. Can't say enough good things about Gaslands. I will point out, though, that Gaslands is currently undergoing some rebalancing. There's this uh, semi-open beta that's going on on Facebook, so if you want to get information on that, you can probably chase it down. There's been some balance changes into the hood, some very, 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 very minor rules changes to make things smoother, some new factions that are going to be introduced into the game. And I have to say that the design work that I've seen, the development work that that I've seen from Mike Hutchison uh, to bring Gaslands to what might or might not be called Gaslands, Refueled or Gaslands 2.0, there are a number of titles being bandied about for a sort of republication. I believe the intent is for later on this year. All those changes have been excellent. It really is, you know, subtle, incremental, but definitely trying to make everything viable, everything in line with everything else. I don't think there are any serious balance problems as it is. And I've played a fair bit with some some wild builds, but I, I am a big fan of where the game is going. And it's definitely good to see that the community online is definitely very fervent and People locally, there, there's certainly uh, uh, a lot of interest and uh, sometimes more new players every day. So that was uh, more love for Gaslands. All right. And that is all the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Portal announced a whole bunch of games coming out. Their whole year lineup. There's only two that piqued my interest because I talked about a whole bunch of roll and write games. Guess what? Portal's bringing out a roll and write Imperial Settlers. Might, okay. Might be, you know, well, why not? Everyone's doing roll and yeah, write Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's their turn, I guess. It's like, you know, hit the button, stomp, stomp, stomp. Out comes a bunch of, you know, roll and write games because <laughs> it's the newest, greatest thing. And the thing that I'm most in, uh, excited about, Neoshima Hex. Love Neoshima Hex. Love always getting new armies. There's one that looks very interesting. There's this new one that's coming out this year because they promised a new one every year. This one's called Sand Runners, and the cover looks great. So another army to look forward to. Have you played Monolith Arena? I have not. Hmm. I'm vaguely curious. Why can't you help me make game decisions, Walker? I'm sorry. You should play this game. Play this game, Mark. Yeah. So Restoration Games, the outfit of Rob Davio and company, are finally redoing something that I think needs to be redone. They did Downforce, which I, you know, whatever. They did Fireball Island, which, uh, sure, fine. And, you know, the Dark Tower, which uh, obviously uh, uh, nerd bait nostalgia. But the next thing they're going to be doing, or one of the next things they're going to be doing, is a Milton Bradley game from 1973 called Conspiracy. Have you played this, Walker? I think I have. It's really good. It's a really good auction game. And I'm I'm surprised that they're, they're, they're tackling it, because for one thing, you can get copies online for pennies because it's a Milton Bradley game so everyone assumes that it, that it's terrible and they're going to be doing a number of changes to the aesthetic of the game they, they've also said they're going to be tinkering around the rules i hope you can still play with the classic rules because they might mess up the rules anyway conspiracy is a marvelous auction game it's it's this it's a game where you make auctions on you you write down a bid to be able to move various pieces and anytime anyone tries to move a piece anyone can announce how much they bid into that piece and then if somebody else has more money into that individual. They've bribed that individual more. They can either cancel the move or, or, or hijack what's going on. And as a turn, instead of moving a piece, you can change your bid. So there's a question about whether you want to save your money over the course of the game or make big investments early and try to rush things. It's got a marvelous sense of tempo and it's really, really clever and neat and very, very simple. So I'm actually really looking forward to the new edition of Conspiracy, unless, of course, again, as I say, they mess it up. I'm going to talk about another game that looks very interesting called Tukey. It looks like one of these cool build games where you use like these very white filler blocks and it says, you know, like build this weird Tetris thing. And then where there's blank spaces, you just fill in with these white blocks. I didn't look much into it. It's one of these things where you just buy it and try it because, you know, it's a dexterity building game and I know I'll love it. 
I'm not 100% sure that it's going to be a dexterity game. I, I poked a little bit into it, and the designer, or the sorry, the publisher, showed up to say that they didn't want it to be about dexterity. They wanted it to be about clever building, which makes me think that maybe it's going to be more of a kind of a spatial puzzle game than it is a dexterity game, mm. which basically means it is not for me, capital N, capital F, capital M. Well, but it does look very cute. It does. On the topic of re-editions of classic games, last week I talked about Han, which is the redevelopment of China, which was the redevelopment of Web of Power, which is a brilliant Michael Schacht area majority game. And I've got to head it to Thunderglyph Games because they clearly listened to the podcast on Tuesday morning. And then in the span of a mere couple hours, they came up with very, very detailed renders of their reprint of this game prompted clearly exclusively by my comments on it. It's clear that this is the power that we have, Mark, now that we're professional reviewers. We get things done. It's, we get it done. Say good things about a game, and then two hours later, you've got a, a full version of... Uh, anyway, so they're going to be kickstarting a reprint, uh, well, a redevelopment of Web of Power called Iwari. So again, I, I, I'm curious they might try to mess it up. There are a number of things that already look a, a little bit dubious, like private scoring goals and hidden scoring and things like that, which makes me wonder that it might complicate what is at, at its heart an extremely simple and accessible game, and that's one of the reasons why it's so good. But one thing that they look to be preserving, which has been gone from both China and Web of Power, is the multiple scoring rounds. In Web of Power, you did two rounds of scoring. And in China and Han, you don't. You only do one. And there were a couple of ways to reintroduce uh, uh, something that meant to approximate kind of sort of that in both of, both of the latter two games. But it didn't really – it's not quite the same. Anyhow, so maybe this is a bit of a return to form as well as uh, some minor redevelopments. The, the pieces look beautiful. Thunderglyph knows how to put out a very, very attractive game even when I don't really care about the game itself. But Iwari looks very, very much like something I'll, I'm going to be interested in. And uh, I wonder if I'm going to get credit in the rulebook for having uh, prompted this project. Oh, I'd be sad if you didn't. And unjust. I'm going to be on the phone with my lawyers. There you go. So we all know that if a publisher puts out a set of rules about three months after a game comes out, it means the game must have been completely balanced and good, right? <laughs> and on that note, Discover Lands Unknown, guess what, is got an updated rule set. Because, you know, I'm sure that they must have forgotten something, but who knows? There you go. I think they forgot the fun. Did they put the fun in there? Yeah, no, I think they forgot. Oh, that's too bad. I think they forgot the game as well. Yeah, they've made it a pure co-op now. It already was a pure co-op. Everyone at the table conspired together to get the game to end as quickly as possible. Exactly. So that you could go and live your life. And then they all weeped on each other's shoulders. It was like a, it was a coming together experience. Very cathartic, exactly. Shared suffering. Root, which was our game of the year for 2018, is getting another expansion, possibly because it sold every copy uh, twice over. And they're going to be introducing two new factions, namely the Moles and the Crows. In so doing, they're also going to be releasing updated versions of the player boards to incorporate the new minor balance changes that we've talked about a couple times before on this show. Very much looking forward to that. Look for that when it, when it comes out. All right. And my last bit of thing on the topic of uh, nobody asked for this. <laughs> uh, well, that's the topic of the show, right? That's, it is. Uh, it was our founding document. An expansion for Jim Henson's Labyrinth, The Fireys. If you remember this terrible musical number in the middle of the movie where they encounter these creatures that can pull their own heads off and roll them around, and there's terrible, you know, green screening from, you know, back in the 80s. But there you go. Now you get an expansion for this great game that everybody owns, Labyrinth from Jim Henson. It's a great game. <laughs> Do you like that old movie? I love the movie. Yeah, everyone does. I just couldn't. It's it's the worst thing that I've ever seen associated with David Bowie. I, I didn't think that there was. I just don't. I don't understand. There are parts of it that are terrible, but there are other parts that are sure incredible. Final note is a new Kickstarter that was just launched today at the time of this recording. Uh, full disclosure, this is a product by Chris Cheslick of Asmati Games, who's a personal friend of mine. It's called 1001 Odysseys. I've had a chance to try various bits of it over several years of development. It's been in the works for a rather long time because there's a lot of material in there. It's a sort of... 
pigeonholing it is rather difficult, but to a certain extent, it's kind of a paragraph adventure game a la Tales of the Arabian Nights or things like that, which is normally not my bag at all. However, one of the things that this game has done very well is that it realizes that it's not so much about a consistent narrative and not necessarily so much about character development or anything like that, but it is about selling a world. I've commented before that one of the reasons why I think Kingdom Death Monster is more successful than a lot of the other quote-unquote narrative experiences, be they Gloomhaven or be they crappy games like Discover Lands Unknown, is that it recognizes that it's about communicating a setting and communicating a mood more than any uh, about you know hitting specific plot points or, 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 or dramatic beats or anything like that. And I have found over the course of the years and even just perusing the Kickstarter page again, A Thousand and One Odysseys to be relentlessly weapons-grade charming. It looks like the art is reminiscent of the old uh, Sega series Fantasy Zone, very colorful, very, very whimsical. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing what has come of the multi-year development project. So I encourage you to at least go take a look at the Kickstarter page if any of that sounds remotely interesting. That's 1001 Odysseys. It's a shame I won't be able to play it. You only have time for a couple? No, I I, I draw the line at 1,000 Odysseys. Yeah, yeah. It goes to, that's too many Odysseys. I, I hear you. But I just thought of a great idea that we have to do. We have to make one of, remember those, you know, pr- those pressure toys that you'd squeeze, you know, to relieve stress, stress balls. Yeah. Yeah. We have to make a little, little padded square with, you know, discovery lands unknown on it and just crush it with our hands. Why do you keep bringing it up again? I thought, <laughs> look, we mentioned it during the That's review. It's going to be our whipping boy. We mentioned it during the 2018 year interview. No. And then I thought we were done. We don't have no, to talk no. about it or think about it anymore. It's it just it, it's painful to oh, me. You're just, it, I'm, I'm, my therapy bills are going up as I'm, you keep mentioning it. All right. That is news and why it doesn't matter. On to our feature game this week, which is Talon by GMT. Mark, would you let us know about this game? So in 1979, there was a game called Starfleet Battles released. And Starfleet Battles, for those that have had the pleasure to start a game, I wonder if you're still ongoing in the middle of the session 30 years later... It was a Star Trek-themed game about various starships fighting each other. And a lot of the conceit was about managing your starship and managing the power outflows and checking off lots of boxes to indicate that various things were happening. Seven years later, there was another game by the same designer called Federation and Empire, which was sort of the green strategic overlay that was slapped on top of this. And for what it's worth, there's been sort of a modern redesign of Starfleet Battles uh, called Federation Commander that's come out recently. That one I haven't tried. I haven't played Federation and Empire either, although uh, I do know somebody who keeps bringing it up uh, half ironically about a great way to ruin a, uh, a week of your life. I mention this because the the sort of design pedigree of Talon is kind of that in reverse because a few years ago, GMT released a game by Jim Crone called Space Empires 4X. And as you might imagine from the title of the game, it is a 4X game in which you control a space empire. Space Empires 4X also... Worth noting under the general aegis of Starfleet Battles and Federation and Empire, it certainly was a game that loved paperwork, you know? If you've ever played Eclipse and wanted to think, you know, I wish I could track which ships were upgraded and which ones weren't, and I wish all these fleets were hidden movements so I get to shuffle stacks of hidden tokens and and chits all day long, then Space Empires 4X is for you. Especially if you thought that the victory conditions of Eclipse were too clever and you wanted to return to the good old days where you won just by knocking somebody out of a game. Anyway. Sounds fantastic. Yeah, Space Empires 4X has its adherence, but really it's just too much shuffling chits around, too much uh, hidden information leading to a bloated playtime for my taste. If you could get it done in a couple hours, I probably wouldn't have any problems with Space Empires 4X, but as it was, it was a little over long. So when Talon came out, which is about specifically space battles in the universe of Space Empires, I wasn't initially very intrigued because uh, I hadn't been particularly impressed with Crone's uh, previous offering. That having been said, though, there were a number of elements, which we will no doubt talk about, uh, that made me want to pick it up. And uh, for for what it's worth, from my perspective, I'm glad I did. So, Walker, why don't you tell us what one does in Talon? Well, in Talon, you're placing chits, and then you're sliding chits, and then you're removing chits. Oh, dear Lord. And you're putting tokens back on the board, and then you're marking hexes, and then you're erasing stuff on hexes, and then you, and then you fire a weapon, and then you start shuffling the chits again <laughs> and that is talon by gmt games on a side note the cover of talon is fantastic it makes you actually think there's a game there i but it's at least a natural color palette unlike you know mustard yellow and bright red all right setting all this aside here's the deal 
So the reason why uh, Talon initially appealed to me was because there are a number of component innovations that make the game playable. Because in a given ship, this is about capital ships. This isn't about, uh, you know, small, nimble little little vessels. You, you can field fighter ships, but even they operate slightly differently. These are about large, ponderous in a good way, as far as I'm concerned, capital ships. You need to manage things like their shield arcs, uh, of which there are four. Uh, there are three nu different numerical values for their what's called their power curve, the charge levels of various weapons, the hull damage, etc., etc. None of that is dealt with chits in any way. All of that is managed by using dry erase markers and writing directly on the ships themselves. And so the, the, the feat of information management in terms of component design in Talon, I really do think is impressive, regardless of what else you might think of the design, and Walker and I are going to hash it out in a moment, no doubt. But just the ability to eyeball what's going on across, uh, you know, a dozen or so very complicated capital ships is truly impressive. And if it hadn't been for this physical innovation, I think the game would be borderline unplayable. No, I agree totally. I have this right here. Solid game mechanics. Everything is there. If this is the type of game that you want to play, everything is in its place. The the system that I'm gonna, oh, I might as well talk about now, they have this very interesting movement and power mechanic where, uh, depending on... Every ship has, you know, different stat lines, and you can move them up and down in between turns. And depending on what your stat line is, you go through the turn order, and either your ship's going to act, you know, one, two, up to six times, depending on how fast or slow you're going. It's going to move, and also your power level. Depending on what your power, power levels, level is set at, you're going to do a power action, you know, one to six times. And, you know, if you have a two power and a three move... You're going to, during a six-turn thing, you're going to move twice and do a power action three times. And it's interesting how that all works together, for sure. That is honestly one of the, the, the coolest aspects of the game for me, because the power management of these vessels, which really in another kind of game, in a lesser design, would just be busy work or upkeep, is really one of the key decision points of the game. Because every time uh, you get what's called available power you get to spend that power from a menu of available actions. Now, one thing I will grant, and we're probably going to circle back to this later on when we start talking about, about negatives of the game, there are lots of turns where these particular choices aren't quite as sharp and pointed as, as you would want them to be all the time. But during a lot of the middle turns where you've already fired a weapon, one of your maybe a couple of your weapons are in the process of recharging. Some of your shields have been damaged. Maybe one of your shields is down. Maybe you're in the process of, of turn, going through an incredibly slow and ponderous turn because again these are very very large ships and there's a sense of momentum even though it's in space and they do some hand wavy science fiction stuff as to why there's momentum in space but figuring out what to do with that power and trying to get yourself in a position that you can move where you want to move but at the same time get enough power to get through those are the kinds of, of uh, trade-offs that I really think make the system shine. The other good point I have here is that there's tons of different ways to play they have the different scenarios you know protect the star base escort the ships uh, just straight up annihilation type thing. So there's, they provide this lots of different scenarios. There are thousands of ships, different, you know, layouts, different things, lots of choice. There's lots of ways to choose these ships. You can either make your own list, you know, set a point value, make your own list up and they have tons of tables. You can just set a point value in there and roll on the tables and get it. So it's very accessible to get to the table. Even, you know, if you don't want to take the time to build your army, everyone just rolls on the, on the thing, set up your thing and you're ready to go. The setup is very quick. That part is great because they don't cover the table. There's not all these asteroids that you have to put out and, you know, slide them this way, slide them that way. The It's a hex map and it's completely blank. You might put, you know, a star base out or a planet out. But other than that, you're up and running fairly quickly. Some of the scenarios have a little bit more ponderous elements of terrain. But yes, most of the time when there's terrain, we're talking about a couple of little pieces here and there. And yeah, setup is, is lightning quick. And indeed, I think, uh, if anything, Walker is uh, correct to identify that there's so many different ways to play. But there's so much more than that because on top of all the different kinds of scenarios and different ways to approach the scenarios, parenthetically, those uh, different fleets where you can just roll a random fleet, that was introduced in the expansion Talon 1000, which 
really blew up the different kinds of, of, of ship classes and just the sheer quantity of ships available. There's tremendous quantity in the base box, but Talon 1000 really goes above and beyond. So now you have a crazy quantity of ships that you can field. Uh, but there are a couple of game modes that we're not going to talk a whole heck of a lot about, precisely because I haven't spent a lot of time with them. Uh, one of them is Empire War. There's a sort of strategic overlay that you can put on top of these different games. So you can play a you know, not a campaign in the, the way that it's been traditionally identified, but it's just a series of linked scenarios whereby the consequences of a battle matter and you have to worry about whether a ship has been destroyed. So, you know, it is in your interest to try to get something to warp to, to fast and light to get it off the field so it's not going to get blowed up so you could use it, repair it and use it later. Uh, and if you really want to go full whole hog, if you are a diehard Jim Crone want to do everything he's ever done. You can even integrate Talon with Space Empires 4X. You can make it so that when a fight starts, viewers, if you could see Walker's, the, the expression on Walker's face right now, you can have it so that your fights in Space Empires 4X are resolved with games of Talon. Now, I have never done this. And one of the reasons why, someone asked about this specifically online. They wanted to know about how well it integrates. I can comment on the following. I can't imagine it would be particularly satisfying if for no other reason than the first element, I've read the rules about how you integrate it. The first thing that it says right off the bat is, here are all the things in Space Empires 4X that you cannot use when you are playing Talon to resolve the battles. And it lists a whole bunch of different technologies and a whole bunch of other things uh, precisely because Talon can't accommodate them because it's a different kind of game. And it's not seeking to emulate all the different little kinds of text that you can invent. So I don't know why you would want to, number one, pare down the variety, and then number two, easily blow up the length of what was already a game that was overlong. So that's all I have to say about that. It's probably just for those diehard, like you said, diehard 4X players that are enjoying it and they just want to add a little bit of, you know, every so often actually fight out that battle. It'd be interesting to do. Part of it makes me wonder if, given the amount of enthusiasm that's evident in Talon and given the amount of variety that was that, that flows from that, I was wondering if this was just Jim Crone wondering if it was possible to do, just to create the architecture so that in his mind it was an integrated experience. And there's nothing wrong with that. No, there's only, there's like two other systems that I can remember that did that. FASA did it for Centurion. That was the ground level. Then you went up to like Leviathan and then they did another system that was even bigger. And then they had another box game that came out that tied all these three together. And I believe Battletech did the same thing where they had like all, it tied like three different games together where you could play these like these ridiculously massive campaigns. And I really wonder if, if anyone's actually gone through an entire one before. Federation and Empire did the same thing. If you wanted to play Federation and Empire using Starfleet battles to resolve some of the fights, you could do that. But again, that's, uh, you know, that's a particular breed of madness. So what don't you like about Talonwalker? All right, we're going to start this. Okay, it's, it's, it's awfully slow. I don't think there is enough shooting. A lot of the weapons, there's a whole charging system that I'm not going to go into, but to sum it up, you pretty well get to shoot every other turn, if not every third turn. So per all, ship, per ship, per ship, right? So there's all this maneuvering around, and you know you can't really concentrate on one ship because by the time you know three rounds go, you're you've already passed each other and you're somewhere else, or you're now you're on another shield arc. So there's not this like it's it just seems very ponderously slow and like. going through those three turns waiting for you to shoot again, you're going through all of these steps of power and movement and chits and, and then you finally get to shoot again. And then you actually have a chance of missing. Like you roll dice and like after all this waiting, finally getting your weapons powered up again, it's like, Oh, I rolled a one. Now I have to charge my weapons again and wait another two to three turns to shoot again. It just, it seemed very frustrating in that part of the game. I did not like I agree with you that it is ponderous. I don't think that anyone could... So, so, okay, well, let's be clear. When we call the game ponderous, when we call the game slow, there are two different things we could be talking about. One of them is that the game takes too long to play. And I don't think that that is a fair charge that could be leveled against Talon, regardless of whatever legitimate criticisms you have of the game. Because in Talon, what we're talking about is two fleets of capital ships that are facing off each other, and you're going to get out of there in 90 to 120 minutes tops. Right. So in that sense, and you get the feel of managing large scale fleet based capital ships. And so in that sense, I don't think it's ponderous just on the face of it. In terms of the actual gameplay, in terms of wrestling with these huge beasts. 
Yes, I agree with you that it is ponderous. And whether or not that is something you want is going to be very much a matter of taste because we have to contradistinguish a game like Talon from a game like X-Wing or even Armada because those two games you fire every round. You just roll the dice. It's like, there you go. There's no consequence of firing. And I think part of that is because they want to be a little bit more up-tempo in terms of what transpires from round to round. And I can completely respect the fact that that is something that you prefer. I like the fact that weapons fire in Talon has consequences that when you have lined up a suboptimal shot, the fact that you know that you're going to have to spend tremendous resources to get those guns online again means that you have to wonder whether you take the shot now or wait for a better shot later. Because those, to me, are some of the key uh, decisions in Talon, those elements of careful timing. It actually reminds me, and this is going to be a bit, of a bit of a stretch, but I hope you can see where I'm coming from. When playing Space Alert, You know that calculation where you look at a range band and say, okay, we need to fire on this thing three turns after it shows up because then it's going to be in range and then we have to do the following things. You know that kind of quick mental math you, you need to do? I find that calculation in Space Alert very stressful, sometimes in a good way, sometimes in a bad way, because it's happening in real time. Talon's calculation about how fast I need my ships to go, about when I need the initiative, about when I need my guns to be online... I get that same sense of being able to look ahead and be able to do the calculation of range bands and other things like that about knowing when my guns are going to be in optimal position. I find it very, very similar. And furthermore, the fact that it takes so long for the gun the, the guns to come back online in terms of, of game turns, not necessarily so much in, in real, real time is, I I think, gives teeth to the power management system. If guns could fire every round, and and again, I'm not saying that you're saying that the game should let you fire guns every round. It's just, it's a legitimate preference that that you do more shooting. Then the the power management aspect would be lost because you wouldn't have as much things to do with your power. You wouldn't have those trade-offs. So I completely hear where you're coming from. On that sort of same note, we're talking about all the different ships and the shooting, the movement. I, I was wondering... I know you're saying it's supposed to be large capital ships going against each other, but there are lots of different size ships, but they just all seem to move the same. Really? Well, within reason, right? It is, you know, fairly ponderous. It's like, you know, turn and move one hex, one hex. You know, nothing will move two hexes or get you going. There are afterburners for the one faction that'll let you go a bit faster, but there's, I just thought, you know, they would have like one, you know, cruiser that you could, you know, that would move a couple spaces a turn or something, just something to mix it up a bit. It just seemed awfully samey. Hmm. So basically the, the, the range of outcomes that you can get in a, in a, in a typical kind of scenario is you might have some fighter squadrons on, on fighter squadrons and missiles on one end, and they're probably going to move every impulse. So they're going to probably move six times a turn and they can turn every time they move. Now, granted, that's not particularly maneuverable. We're talking about one hex side every time they turn. And on the other end, we have things like the, the big, heavy battleships or the dreadnoughts or the battlecruisers or things like that. These ships will probably move two or three times on an impulse. And every time they turn, they then need to go straight for about two or three movements every time they turn. That's putting out more tokens to mark that too, just, just so you know. <laughs> okay, we'll get to the tokens in just a second. I was going to let that slide, but if you want to keep bringing it up. And to me, that does, I mean, it's still the case that everything feels like weighty and consequential, but I do still feel the difference. And even when you tighten that difference a little bit, and instead of going from fighter all the way to battlecruiser, and instead you have something like, well, you've got a frigate or a scout on one end, and you've got a heavy cruiser on the other. They feel very different to me, just in terms of their power output and how well they move. You still feel like you're still playing on with Talon's movement rules, which are very, very uh, uh, definitive. But I actually quite like the ship differentiation, both in terms of the the, the weapon loadouts and their their power and movement profiles. They are different for definitely the weapons. It's just the way, you know, everything is just one hex every turn. Like, I just wish that some, it just seemed more fluid for the other ships. Again, I can respect that. So, okay, so let's talk about these chits that you keep bringing up, because I want, I want our humble listeners to get a proper sense of the proportion of, of these things of the tons and tons of, of tokens so every time you most ships have a profile is their power first then their movement and then how many hexes they have to move straight before they're allowed to turn again so if their power is three like we said before they're going to move three have a power level three times a turn and during this power level you can put out tokens to improve your shields you can put out tokens to change initiative more on that later you can put out tokens and when you move you have to put out tokens ahead of your ship to show that you have to move this far straight ahead in order to turn again but then you can use your power to take that token off and then 
Yeah, it's just, it's a lot of tokens. I will grant you that if I organize... Okay, so the shield tokens are keyed to the impulse when you put them out. So every time you use power to boost your shield on impulse B, you put out a B so that you know that the next time B rolls around, you remove it because it lasts for precisely one turn. Those, I will grant you, are a little bit obnoxious. And if I had sorted them better, it, I'll, I'll claim partial responsibility for that. I just leave them in a pile. And so you do have to a little bit, do a little bit of fishing in, because I was lazy and didn't sort them properly. Right. Finding them wasn't the problem. It was just like putting them on, taking them off, putting them on, taking them off. So the shield tokens, I'll grant you. That, that was one element of management. But, but the turn radius tokens and the sideslip tokens, which are the other tokens that you use to, to, to actually indicate on a ship, again, I can visually eyeball on a table of Talon and see which ships are doing what and when they can turn again and, and, and what, what all that is concerned. And it's of extremely minimal upkeep when someone else is doing their movement because it's, it's very much I go, you go. There's no simultaneous action again because there's a sort of very deliberate pacing involved in Talon and that's either good or bad depending on your perspective. Whereby somebody turns and then moves, and again, I can just eyeball and see what your turn radius is, and I can just grab the turn chit, and there you go, you're off to the races. So, yes, there's a fair amount of chip manipulation, but I don't want people to get the impression that it's as cumbersome as you're making it out to be. That's true. I'm saying not, the movement on itself is not bad, but coupled on top of everything else, it's just yet another. And then we'll go to the initiative system. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to know if in the rule book, is there anything that, that has any theme on how this works? One of the things you can do in power is say, I'm going to take initiative. This is this is ECM. This is ECCM. This is jamming. This is using power to communications. This is about data analysis. Oh, this guess. is about SIGINT. It this just, is about... Seemed, just seemed arbitrary. That's all. It's like, I'm going to take initiative now. It's like, because that other person has already gone, they didn't play any, you know, defense. So you're just going to take it. And, or, it's it's or a bit... someone's going to play, like in the last game, it's like, okay, I'm going to play eight to defend it. Or I'm going to take, you know, play. It just seemed, seemed arbitrary. Well, your, your attitude towards uh, claiming or defending initiative seemed to be pretty much all or nothing. Like if you had four ships that had power in a given phase, sometimes you would just immediately make the decision that all of them were going to either defend or, or take the initiative. It's kind of like a bidding system whereby whoever goes first and they have power, they get to d- decide whether they want to change the initiative. And that, again, this factors into one of those, those key inflection decision points that I'm talking about, knowing when you need to make the shot. And Part and parcel of that is knowing when you need initiative and knowing when you don't need initiative. And much of the time when I'm doing badly in talent, it's precisely because I didn't spend the time to look ahead and figure out what I needed to, to, where I needed to be and when. And so the fact that you can manipulate that with your available resources in a very, very straightforward and easy to view way, an easy to manage way, I think is to its credit. I'm not saying it's easy or hard to manage. It just didn't seem to make any thematic sense to me. That's all. Well, then that was probably my fault for, for not explaining the rules in, in the fullness of, of thematic vision. I, I, I wouldn't say that either. <laughs> you don't want to blame me. You want to blame GNT. Is That's that it? right. Okay. It's all their fault. And I only have one other, one other point here. And it just seems like – I'm not going to – just seems like a lot of busy work for no payoff at the end. Like we said, with the tokens and the ponderous movement and finally getting around to ships to destroy them. It just seemed like all of this stuff for a little – not enough payout at the end. There's not enough pew pew, not enough explosions, not enough, you know, barrel rolls and arcings and, you know, it didn't give you the space battle feel. Well, it certainly doesn't give you any barrel rolls. I mean, I, I don't know why you would want barrel rolls in a game about capital ships. That, that, I mean, that in particular seems like a strange objection. I, I will grant you that, yeah, like you don't get a whole lot of explosions, but when you do get explosions, they're huge. Because, again, we're talking about a game where, by and large, you know, six-ish ships on either side. If there were explosions happening all the time, then it wouldn't be much of a game. You wouldn't – it would be far too arbitrary and be over too quickly and – I, I, I like the fact that you have to think about how to take down a capital ship. That makes sense to me thematically, and, it, and it's, I find it satisfying mechanically as well. Because one of my big objections to games like X-Wing, games like uh, some, some of their games like that, is their point system is designed in such a way that you can't really field large enough forces, and that, that tends to exaggerate the effect of fluky or un- unlucky rolls. Sometimes that happens in Talon, absolutely. As you say, sometimes your weapons miss. They're some weapon systems that don't miss, they just do more or less damage, case depending, but there are some weapon systems that miss, and that is unfortunate, but... Well, like I said, in the game that we played, I was one point of damage away from destroying your large capital ship without you even firing it once. Yeah. And it just seemed like that would have been an, a devastating blow to your side right well, off the hop. Well, you, you well I, you crippled it anyway. 
it, it wasn't able to do anything in the game because you you destroyed its power systems and its shields had been rendered inoperable. And after it fired its its weapons in a very unsatisfying way because I wasn't able to get it where I wanted it to go because I would have th- exposed it too much fire, it then just limped for the remainder of the scenario. And the reason why that happened was is I took the initiative when I didn't want the initiative and you were able to concentrate fire, bringing it down and, and hobbling it. You made the better call, and you concentrated your fight. I don't understand. What, what's your objection here? I, I just seemed to, like if it was. I just see, seemed to thought it was overpowering. I thought it would be. I thought maybe you weren't having the fun you needed because your one big ship was, like you said, crippled. Right I knew. Off, I right knew. On the very first I knew it was my fault. And while you were doing that. I had managed to concentrate my fire on your troop transports, I say, you, and I you, blew them up. That's right. You looked at the objective, and you uh, and you succeeded in the objective while I was <laughs> just concentrating on this giant ship. So you got to you got to do what you wanted to do. You brought down. You you basically hobbled the 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 the, the biggest ship in my fleet. And I concentrated on the victory conditions, and I was able to, to make the triage decisions necessary and use my weapons there. I, I I don't understand why this is at all a criticism. It sounds like a pretty good session report to me. Well, there you go. The last thing that I want to comment is uh, solo play, because some some of our listeners do engage in solo gaming, and they've they've asked about solo play. Talon One Thousand, in addition to introducing a whole bunch of new fleets and new ship types, introduced solo play. And another thing I'll note about Talon One Thousand is it introduced a, a a new an enhanced destroyer ship for the Terran side, named after philosophers: uh, the Socrates, the Aristotle, the Plato, and the Erasmus. And uh, unlike my jokingly claiming credit for the, uh, the the reprint of Web of Power, I'm going to legit claim credit for that because uh, Jim Crone showed up on the Talon forum and uh, fora on Board Geek and said, "I need names for ship classes," and I said, "You should name them after philosophers." And then he made some sort of crack about how he was going to insert a Princess Bride quote about philosophers, and sure enough, he later he later did. Uh, it is, however, a tragedy that Kant was not taken as one of the names of philosophers. Erasmus isn't bad. The Via Medea is, is you know, an interesting thing, but uh, Aristotle is, is probably one of the over, most overrated people in the Western canon. And I have my problems with Plato, too. Anyway, setting all that aside with difficulty. Solo gaming. There are three ways to play Talon solo, basically. The first element is, if you're the kind of wargamer who is willing to play any kind of perfect information, no hidden stuff, War game solo, playing both sides, Talon already out the, the base game box will let you do that, and that's fine. And again, although the ships feel ponderous, it is streamlined in such a way that you can manage all the information relatively easily, and that is to its credit, both physically and in terms of, uh, of, of game mechanisms. The second thing, the second layer of solo gaming, and this is introduced in Talon 1000, is Jim Crone made a third faction in the game that is that, that thematically is a whole bunch of AI ships run by AI that don't manage power. And so already that's a large segment of the decision-making just taken off. They do other things instead. And they've been designed around s- simplifying solo play. And that's my preferred way to play solo. Just setting up a match against them and just by virtue of their ship designs, they, are, they lend themselves to solo play and it automates things marvelously. Then there's the third level which is there's a kind of an AI script for how to play with those ships. And it's fine. I mean, it's it's in the same tradition. If you play coin game solo, if you like following those, those sort of if-then spreadsheet kind of deals about how to make plays for automated bots, then this is going to suit you just fine. I don't like playing solo games that way. It's It's not particularly cumbersome. It's just I don't find that it adds tremendously to the second layer of solo play that I've talked about. I would much rather just set up a normal game against those. Anyway, you can peruse the solo rules yourself. I, I will just say that the design work of creating a solo f- solo playable faction, the AI ships, is marvelous. And that by itself was more than enough to facilitate solo play to my satisfaction. Anyhow, if you had all enthusiasm for Talon, Talon 1000 I think is a great expansion. So to sum up, I think it's clear that, that we're coming from radically different places about what we want out of the game and our impressions about how well that game satisfies it. But it is definitely different from a lot of the other space battle type games that you have in terms of being able to emulate sort of large ship class scale fights. And that's what I'll say about Talon. All right. My sum up is, what is it trying to simulate? If it's trying to simulate a fast, exciting, epic space battle, then that's a fail. If it's trying to simulate whales jousting with crossbows, epic win. I actually think that whales jousting with crossbows sounds like a pretty good way to talk about capital ship battles. That sounds good to me. There you go. All right. Whales jousting with crossbows. Like there we go. We agree. There might be something there. Like I said, I, I didn't adjust power at the end of the turn very much. This, you know, making yourself move faster, turn less. And like you said, waiting for that perfect shot. 
there might be a game there for some people. This sure. just is not the type of space battle game that I enjoy. That is entirely legitimate. And, and as I say, if X-Wing does everything you want out of kind of space battles, then you go do that and you chase your bliss. Uh, but for someone who is in, willing to deal with a deliberate pace and willing to understand that it is about managing that deliberate pace, I think Talon is worth a look. All right, and that is Talon by GMT Games. Now on to the topic of the week, which is table talk, which is sort of like slamming your friends or, or you know, jabbing them in the ribs when you're winning or trying to put pressure on them or just mocking them when they make a bad decision or stuff like that. Do you think that exhausts the realm of what table talk should or can consist of? Yes. Okay. <laughs> that explains a whole heck of a lot. Well, it could also be like when you, you oh, I guess we can get into it like po- talking politics while you're at the table. Oh boy. I know, right? You went straight well, from trash like, talk to talking I politics? Know, right? Or, you know, bringing up odd so, questions. So, you're stupid and ugly. How do you feel about Joe Biden? Or, or you know, when, if you have friends or your significant other there and you bring up stuff from home. Well, this, this, attitude, this or, attitude certainly explains yes. why you don't have any of those. All of the, uh, you know. Table talk sometimes is terrible, but sometimes is awesome. Okay, so let's start with trash talk then. <laughs> let, us, let us begin with trash talk. I think it's fair to say that you and I are both very pro-trash talk. We definitely are. And and you do have to be very careful. I am very careful when there's new players. Because some people might say that I can sometimes be sarcastic. I think these people are arrogant and wrong. And they don't know me personally. And they are terrible people. But... I have to manage that definitely when there's new people because they don't understand my level of hyper sarcasm. I am really, really bad at doing that, at managing that with new players. I go from zero to crazy jerk face in no time flat. And I, I, I mean, I honestly do it as sometimes I honestly do it as a sign of respect because I, I do think that to go easy on an opponent is kind of condescending and, and sometimes even a little bit wrong. More on that possibly in a different topic. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely should be more careful about how I engage my, my, my trash talk. There's, there's the common rejoinder that we have. And I actually I know where it comes from from my perspective. It, it, there was this moment in the first Sin City mo- movie where somebody says to a character, that coat looks like Baghdad, so's your face, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense in terms of, of syntax. But anyhow, uh, so that rejoinder, so's your face, is my default reply to almost any statement in the context of playing a board game. Like, that move was terrible, so's your face, or that went great, so's your face. Mark, saying that to everything is stupid. So's your face. Right. So that being said, how I usually do it is I do it a lot of self-deprecating stuff at the beginning, Right. And then just gauge the looks of people and then so slowly turn it onto them and control the table and make them weep into their shoulders. Oh, so you do oh, so you actually think that you're you're leveraging tactical or strategic benefit from this. Oh, for sure. I do it just because I find it fun. <laughs> no, no. I don't actually think I, I genuinely don't think that I'm capable or inclined of psyching somebody out. Oh, it happens by... in code names all the time. We psych them out. Okay, well, that's, okay, that's different. All right, that's different. That that specific level of trash talking. So, okay, again, to bring up the the one of the recurring topics of the past few weeks, how we play code names, which is we immediately start giving quote unquote advice to the other team when the 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 code master gives out a clue. I've seen this, of course, backfire. It's one of my favorite parts of the game. I've seen it backfire though. Every time, every every time I play code names, it is usually the case that one of my colleagues on my team starts jokingly trying to give help to the other team, and halfway through the the, the joke, I'm like, "Wait a minute, that might actually be an answer." <laughs> <laughs> so I covered new players, historical games. So I, I know historical games. I I wrote this down because sometimes people take things seriously, and and rightfully so in some circumstances. So when you start mocking a particular country or race or creed or religion in the game that's being played, some people will take offense and you should really just watch what you say in those circumstances. Just try to keep it, you know, clear of that kind of thing. Just watch what you say. I actually noticed that this reminds me of something that I wanted to bring up. I couldn't help but notice that when you were playing brass uh, the other day, 
that you and everyone at the table started doing the, the classic Walker retheming treatment to various things that were going on. So the, the canonical example of this, of course, is what you've done to Great Western Trail about how this is pleasing the alien overlords who want to pre uh, who want to probe pretty cows. Uh, so what exactly did you do to, to Brass on the topic of historical well, for games? all the buildings, we had uh, the orphanage. Mm-hmm. We had the orphan stomper. And then we had the meat dragon factory. <laughs> so you had the orphanage to supply the orphan stompers in which we used the orphan meat to make the meat dragons. It was great. It okay, was wait, great. wait, wait. Sorry, just, just to be absolutely clear, and I realize this is this is beside the point. Is this a dragon made of meat? Yes. Okay. Orphan meat. <laughs> right. This is pulled directly from uh, Film Cow, by the way. You know, all, all proceeds, you know, to them. Okay. And I think it's fair to say that we probably wouldn't last very long playing with somebody who found that level of riffing offensive or, in, or inappropriate. There are, I think, once we start talking about more actually historically themed games, I do think that, you know, talking about various historical anecdotes and various cool little things that happen in history can really amplify your experience of the game. For example, when playing Pandemic Iberia, I typically bring up my my story about why the Spanish flu is called the Spanish flu, because I think it's interesting, even though Pandemic Iberia is not about the Spanish flu, I know that full well. But it's about diseases in Spain. So there you have it. That's my hook. And I think in those contexts, it can really, table talk can really, really amplify the experience of the game. We do this all the time for what it's worth in most fighty games, where, where we tell little stories about what happened, about, you know, we give characters different names than what they're actually called in, in, in the game. And we set up little vignettes about how they're, you know, punching each other in the face. And that, that I think, really can help with the, the, the thematic hooks of a particular game. Although, as I say, we mostly do it in combat. Next, I have close friends with non. So when you're playing with a whole bunch of close friends, you guys are, you already have a, a repertoire between you and how you talk. And you should just be careful because, you know, it might be, you know, too much for this one new player. You might not understand that you're friends or know what's going on. Just be aware of what's, of what's happening around you. One thing that I wanted to add to this, and this is something that I thought of, is that I... Find it. I, I can find it very toxic to the atmosphere of the game when people start bringing up what I would call limited conversations. You know, talking about a thing that only the two of them did or a specific event that transpired between the two of them. I mean, if you're going to engage in table talk, I think that ideally it ought to be a topic that is accessible to everyone that is at the table. You know what I mean? I do. This one popped in my head and I thought it was very interesting. So a public space versus your home. Now, when you're in a public space, you have a little more freedom. You just feel as though you have, you can escape. You know what I'm saying? You have somewhere to go. You know what I mean? Like, it's sort of like a, a, a safe space. But when you're in someone's home, especially for the first time, you might not feel as comfortable. And you have to understand that when you're inviting people into your house for the first time, that they might not feel right at home right away. And you, you, you need to, you know, gauge your conversation accordingly. Yeah, it's weird. I think... I agree with you, and at the same time, and this is a weird issue of cognitive dissonance, I think it can actually cut the other way as well. Because you're in a public space, you have an obligation to be conscious of what you are doing to that public space, because you're inserting yourself into a shared environment. In your home, when theoretically, you have the, the freedom to do whatever you want. At the same time, and you do have to be conscious of the fact that people might, might be less comfortable there. So I think it actually cuts both ways. And basically, I think there are good reasons in both contexts to be very, very careful about the tenor of your table talk, which leads me to something I have written down here, which I'm very, 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 very bad at, which is limiting my use of vulgarity. I swear all the time. <laughs> in fact, it's a minor miracle that I haven't had to edit out several F-bombs over the course of well, any given episode of both the plug. Of us, actually, yes. Yeah. Well, look. I've heard you speak. The quantity and profusion of vulgarity that you deploy is not even a fraction of what I do on a regular basis. And I'm particularly bad at reining it in either with new people or with small children that are nearby. I'm just really bad at it. I just, I I don't even know why. Because I, well, look, I'm obviously capable of doing it because I do it in the podcast. I don't swear when we're recording the podcast, but get me in front of a game or indeed just talking with people casually. And I swear constantly. I don't know what it is. I think it's my limited vocabulary. It's, I think you are probably correct. No, I'm, I'm being sincere. I, I really think that might be a vocabulary problem. <laughs> All right. Next is uh, threatening or violence, right? When we play with our with f- 
frickin' frack and Huey and Dewey. Huey, Dewey, and Louie, yeah. Huey, Dewey, and Louie. We, we have a very violent table talk. Yes. Like, we talk about summer teeth. We talk about all sorts of things. Summer teeth is like, some of your teeth are over there, some of your teeth are over here. And, you know... Threatening threats of murder, th- threats of murder, violence, specific, threats of specific acts of violence. Exactly. I will stab your left left eye with this pen that I'm holding right exactly. now. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that when there's new players or in a public space, probably is right out. And I I think we do a good job of not you know being too over the top when we're with new players or in uh, in a public space. Yeah, that element of table talk, I'm actually I'm, I'm not going to say that I'm especially good at, but I'm at least better at modulating that than I am about vulgarity and and other kinds of trash talk because I had to learn that lesson in the context of teaching. Because I'm I'm relatively bad at coming up with hypotheticals in the context of ethics. Like, you know, say we're in a position where the following thing would happen, you know, is this right, wrong, or indifferent. And so my natural inclination for whatever reason would be acts of violence. You know, say the following thing would happen, and then I would describe some particularly violent thing that would befall a, a member of the classroom, and I would gesture towards them. And I realized relatively early on in my teaching career that this was not a good idea, and I needed to stop. Uh, and so I did. And so... <laughs> That at least for, for for new people, people that I'm not uh, particularly close with, I, I I know better than to do that. The other thing that is very important, I think, with respect to table talk is timing and knowing what to say to whom when. And when someone is about to take their turn, you should not say anything to them. <laughs> you should just let them do their thing with, with certain very, very minor exceptions. And I really hate it when... Uh, someone is silent and not engaging in any th- any table talk for a prolonged period of time. And then immediately before their neighbor is about to take their turn, they pipe up and say, oh, how was that concert you went to? Just drives me nuts. Agreed. Next thing is, which is the same sort of, it feeds into that a little bit, is controlling the table. Sometimes you're excited. Sometimes you're in a new space. Sometimes the conversation is going so well and you're just, you know, over-engaging. Maybe you're, you're taking over the entire conversation or maybe... I don't know get, what that's like. I know. I know you have no idea. I, I can't believe I'm actually going to be in this episode for a change. Um, yeah, it's going to be our worst episode ever. I know. You, uh, and, and you're, or you're really deep in the game and then you start giving people advice when you shouldn't be, or you start trying to control their turn or, or, you know, you go over the top. That's another thing to watch out for. Yeah. The so-called alpha gamer problem is yeah. definitely a function of managing table talk. I agree. Now, with respect to managing the flow of the game, I'm a- I actually realized that that my position is a little more flexible than I thought it was because as, as, as I just mentioned, you know, you shouldn't interrupt someone's turn to give them advice. If they're in the middle of doing something, you shouldn't ask someone a social question just before they're about to take their turn because that really has a detrimental uh, effect on the flow of the game. But sometimes I think, especially with very, very long games, knowing when you should take a, a moment to breathe and have 30 seconds of idle chit-chat where the entire table is no longer intently focused on the game, I think that, that can really be helpful, especially when you're in the mindset that we're sitting down and we're playing something that's going to take four, five, six hours. In those contexts, I really, really, really think that you have to let Obviously, you have to be you have to be conscious of the context, and this can't happen all the time because then your four, five, six hour game is instead going to take 10, 11, 12 hours, which is less than ideal. But you really have to know when it's okay for everyone to take a moment and breathe. When we were playing Megasiv, for example, again, it was a relatively brisk game. We only played for a little under four hours. But there were times when all nine of us around the table were just sharing a story or talking about the same thing. And I really think that in games of that length, with, 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 especially with that many people, it can be really helpful. Agreed. So I'm just going to fall back into my normal narrative, which is people do not have a lot of time. When they have time set aside to play games, that is usually very precious to them. And you really need to be careful to make that precious time worthwhile to them and and not ruin it for them. But not like, you know, it's not as though it's your job to make sure they have fun or anything, but just be aware that things you do or say might you know, poison or hinder their experience and just try to make it, you'll find that the more conscious you are of these things, the more fun you'll have as well. I agree. And if anyone says anything that puts a damper on the mood of the table, threaten to curb stomp them and then point to the curb on which you will curb stomp them. Yeah, true. That's the the upshot, I'm not going to say they'll see the teeth that are still lying there from last joker that tried to do the same thing. And then they'll understand that, you know, we don't go for that. Preferably peppered with four letter words. Exactly. 
So that's going to do it for this week. Thanks very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. Share with him your favorite expletives. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. Please send me new words for me to learn. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, or you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong.